What worries you the most about the environmental and climate change challenges we face in the 21st century? Actually, what I think is going to be our biggest challenge is twofold. Uh, one is finding newer ways through constructing newer, more urgent narratives about how we can form ourselves as more robust communities. And I think critical to that is the notion of individual mobility. I think we premise so much on individual mobility, where, of course, the offset of that is uh, emissions and all of that. But I think it prevents us from forming communities because in the world today, infrastructure and mobility infrastructure is perhaps the most powerful denominator or common denominator that could help us operate uh, as uh, a collective beings uh, rather than uh, play out our individual impulses, which I think is really going to accelerate climate change, if nothing. Welcome. This is Craig Applegath, and this is the 21st Century Imperative Podcast, the podcast series that explores the insights and approaches of scientists, designers, planners, engineers, business entrepreneurs, and other successful change makers who are finding effective ways to meet the three critical challenges posed by the 21st Century Imperative. These are, how will we continue to live on our planet without destroying our biosphere? How will we repair and regenerate the environmental damage we have already caused? And how will we adapt to the escalating impacts of climate change? Each episode will feature an interview with an individual whom I think you will find not only inspiring, but also very relevant to helping you answer the question, what can I do to meet the challenges of the 21st century imperative? In this podcast, I have the very great pleasure of interviewing Rahul Marotra, an old friend and one of the world's most talented architects and insightful urban designers. Rahul is a practicing architect and educator, splitting his time between his professional practice in Mumbai, India, and teaching at Harvard University, where he is currently the director of the urban design program at the Graduate School of Design. He has executed a wide range of projects across India and has also written co-authored and edited dozens of books on Mumbai, its urban history, its historic buildings, public spaces, and the planning process. I first met Rahul when we were both graduate students at Harvard's Graduate School of Design. What I remember most about first meeting Rahul was his sparkling intelligence and totally unpretentious manner combined with a gentle sense of humor. Rahul first studied at the School of Architecture in Ahmedabad, India, where he received the gold medal for his undergraduate thesis and then at Harvard's Graduate School of Design, where he graduated with a master's degree in urban design with distinction. He has taught at the University of Michigan, the School of Architecture and Urban Planning at MIT, at the Harvard Graduate School of Design, where he chaired the Department of Urban Planning and Design, and is currently the director of the urban design program there. Most relevant in the context of the 21st century imperative, Rahul led a Harvard University-wide research project with Professor Diana Eck called the Kumbh Mela, mapping the ephemeral megacity, which was published as a book in 2014. He extended this research in 2017 in the form of a book titled Does Permanence Matter? Both these research efforts offer important insights into how we might address the anticipated dislocation of large populations caused by climate change, especially with the UN now estimating that the world will see over 250 million climate refugees by 2050. In addition to his research explorations, Rahul is a world-renowned architect with many award-winning built projects to his name. In our podcast, I talk with Rahul about the social and environmental purpose that underpin much of his work, as well as the important insights he has gained from his research of the Kumamela and later explorations of impermanent habitations that may provide us with important understandings for how we might more effectively respond to the future large-scale migrations of climate refugees. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Rahul, welcome to the podcast. Let's begin with you telling listeners about your passion for architecture and urban design. When did you first know you wanted to be an architect and then an urban designer? Thanks for having me on, Craig. Uh, you know, I think when I reflect about this, I realize 
that my parents, my father, who was in a kind of service uh, job, they moved a lot. Every couple of years, they moved homes and moved cities. Uh, and uh, I think I was the only one in the family who used to be excited by that, uh, by the idea of setting <laughs> up a new home and rearranging space. And I'm talking about when I was eight and 10. And of course, it was only after I was 18 or 20 that I became conscious of the fact that this was something that was of a passion and that I could actually pursue as a career. And then while studying architecture in Ahmedabad, the School of Architecture Ahmedabad, uh, you know, there the city is an incredible artifact because you have this incredible coexistence of a beautiful traditional city which has survived for hundreds of years. And that is sort of confronted in a sense with a really modernist city where Corbusier, Louis Kahn, and the first generation of modernist Indian architects like Charles Correa and Doshi have built. And so to understand the place of architecture within the context of a city or the context of architecture, I think led me to a study of design. I, I remember when we were both getting to know each other at grad school many years ago, the GSD, um, you were fascinated by the difference between your experience in India and your new experience in North American Boston. And I remember you once saying to me, the big difference between your experience uh, in India and Boston was density, the number of people that were occupying a space. And uh, do, you, do you remember that conversation years oh, ago? Absolutely. And I yet sort of feel it because I commute, well, God, commute is not the right word, but I, I divide my time between Boston and India and I'm back in India every uh, six weeks. And it's bizarre because I kind of have to really adjust to, you know, the cultural notion of body space, for example. And when I taught at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, I, in, the, in the spring semester, I did a studio on Detroit. And in the fall semester, I did a studio on Mumbai. And I would jokingly say to my colleagues that you could solve the problem of both places if you just moved 5 million people from Mumbai to Detroit uh, and <laughs> balance the density out uh, globally, which is also leads to a really interesting question which has massive implications on you know the discussion on climate change and everything else Craig that you've been really engaged with which is when you look at a map of the globe uh, you find where 73 of 75 percent of the world's population lives if you kind of draw a line to encompass those uh, uh, countries uh, you find that that 75 percent of the world's population I think is in control or enjoys about 8% of the world's economy. And mm -hmm. where I think 8 or 14%, some range there of the world's population lives, which is essentially North America, Europe, and Australia, it controls over 75% of the world's economy. Uh, and this sort of incredible disjuncture between what is the majority world and the minority world, and then who controls the economy and where the emissions, uh, which have an implication on climate change, are at their peak. I mean, talk about inequity. It's a complete imbalance. Yes, and, and I want to talk a little later in the podcast about that imbalance. But, but not only is it an imbalance in the economy, but in both North America and in Europe, birth rates are declining. Actual populations will be declining by mid-century. So there's a need for just basic economic sustainability for there to be more people. So I think one of the solutions to that imbalance is moving people from one place to another. Whether or not we can make it work is another question. Doug Saunders, a, a Canadian writer, uh, wrote a book recently called Maximum Canada, where he posited that the best um, population number for Canada is somewhere around 100 million people. We're now at 37 million. So that, that's just to get a sustainable economy, let alone anything to do with sustainability, um, environmental sustainability. So I, I think it's certainly worth talking about. You've done a number of interesting things in your career as both an architect and urban designer that I think have a very important bearing on meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative. In your architectural planning practice, you have worked on a number of projects that are all about exploring and responding to the challenges of regenerating damaged ecologies. I think one of the most compelling examples of this is your wonderful social housing project for 100 elephants and their caretakers in Jaipur, India. 
By the way, as a fellow architect, I think this is one of the most beautiful projects I've seen you create. I think our listeners would like to hear more about this project and your strategy for rehabilitating the ecology of the site you were working with. This was true truly one of the most uh, challenging projects that we've uh, actually dealt with. Uh, And uh, here, this was a condition where demography among the poorest in the country, uh, in this case, they were mahuts or elephant keepers uh, from the Muslim community, uh, which is their real minority in the state of Jaipur, which is a largely Hindu population uh, with a Hindu right-leaning government. And the project was to provide housing for them, for this low-income group. And the site that we were given was uh, a sand quarry, which is a site that the sand quarry contractors had extracted extracted sand from. Uh, And so I think the first question we asked ourselves was there was already a kind of disjuncture here that elephants were even living in Rajasthan, which is essentially a desert climate, and elephants are essentially tropical beings, and water is critical to their health and their lifestyle, so to speak. And so we basically decided that uh, architecture had to be kind of receded in the priority here, in the pecking order of decision-making, and landscape had to be kind of cremated. Uh, And it was really essentially about creating a landscape which would make a habitat where elephants and their keepers could kind of survive because the volumes that elephants need of water uh, is enormous. So this was a case where... We really engaged with repairing, regenerating, uh, and privileging landscape and the existence of water, capturing water, making place for it, creating the humidity that you needed for these tropical beings to exist, and then placing architecture in the interstitial spaces rather than the other way around where we often in our impulses as architects design the built environment and then place landscape in the interstitial. So it was a project really about reversing that. It was about also reversing uh, what might be the business as usual approach to a project like this. But it was also a project which implicitly empowered uh, a low-income community by giving them great access to water. So while the middle class and the upper middle class in Jaipur have to buy tankers of water every week because there's an acute water shortage there, these guys now have a surplus of water. So they grow flowers. They have in their little clusters of low-income housing. They have well-manicured lawns. They, they are playing out all the aspirations of the middle and the upper middle class and they are the poorest minority actually marginalized in that society. So I believe, I mean, what I learned from the project in retrospect, it's something that's been going on for a decade, is that actually architecture, urban planning, urban design, landscape architecture, these are very powerful instruments if we can bring human values to it. And if we can actually operate within those kind of interstitial spaces of politics, economics, and an understanding of society. I remember seeing the images a few years ago when you were presenting at the University of Toronto School of Architecture, and the before and after was so starkly different. The, and and we'll, we'll post uh, 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 images of both before and after on the, on the podcast blog. It, the before looked um, like rock desert, just absolutely dry. And the after is this lush oasis-like um, setting. What, did, did the, aside from uh, the elephants and their keepers being um, very, very well accommodated by this, did it have any uh, effect on inspiring other people in the area to do similar things with their geography? I mean, what, what kind of a, um, a, a knock-on effect did it have, a positive knock-on, did it? Well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think the project was dragged over a decade with many governments changing and some patronizing it and some not. And it was sort of below people's radar. But in the last few years, the last couple of years, it's suddenly becoming sort of very prominent at two ends of the spectrum. One is 
in let me say the popular popular media so if you go to tripadvisor uh, and websites like that it's sort of rated really highly on their sort of list of things to do in jaipur and a lot of young tourists love going there and feeding the elephants and bathing with the elephants and the sons of the mahouts or the keepers of the elephants have used this in a kind of entrepreneurial way and now it's become an economy for them so there's a whole kind of phenomena that's occurred there which you know we haven't mapped i've only observed and i should map but the other is that i think among local architects especially the younger local architects they've been paying it a lot of attention and i know a young group of architects has got together recently to do a publication to map it and to map life there because what it's demonstrated or from what i understand speaking to them demonstrated for them is this idea that you can even today make a human centric architecture where architecture is not the central instrument in this whole process but it's about creating an armature for life and beginning to create an ecology with, within which life uh, could exist and so i mean i think if there are little shifts like that within the community both of people who live in jaipur but also practitioners there i'd be very satisfied and just so listeners understand my memory of what you actually did was that you used clay local clay to line what were to become ponds with enough clay that when the monsoon rains came that instead of the water percolating through into the soil below that it was retained am i correct in that memory yeah that's actually uh, th- that's great that you remember that so essentially we didn't have in the public works department specs uh, material for lining this which we would have used some kind of rubberized membrane uh, and so we were about to abandon the idea when the elders among the mahut community said to us that look the local clay has the ability over one or two monsoons to harden and and create a membrane automatically and so just sort of using that local wisdom uh, which we you know bet our money on in a sense we we kind of completely trusted what that local wisdom would be telling us we 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 moved in that direction without abandoning the idea of the ponds just because the budgets didn't exist and so i think for me again in retrospect that was a case of uh, learning how to listen to the locality and often in the way the profession is um, structured today around the world uh, we pretend to be connected to the environment and the locality but often it's tokenism at best that we are engaging with mhm you know it's it, it's significant it would be um really great to see those kind of strategies deployed in other areas i i know that climate change is going to create much greater drought conditions around the mid latitudes in the world so so strategies like this that are indigenous are are probably going to be the the best way forward another project that i think really offers some important insights into how a building can actually become part of the ecology of the site as well as adapting to the future impacts of climate change is the office building project you designed in hyderabad one of the things that most impressed me about this project was it such a great example about how to recycle material in a way that is not only socially responsible but also beautiful if i recall correctly in this project you worked with a nearby village to recycle discarded aluminum pop cans to make a beautiful cast aluminum exterior screen that was then used as a second skin for the building um i'll put an image up on the the podcast blog as well um c- could you tell us a, a bit about how that happened and and am i correct in remembering the the uh, relationship between the village and the and the construction project uh yes uh i mean here we tried to address a couple of issues uh and i think for me the most important issue which i hadn't explicitly thought through but kind of had been implicitly bothering me was this idea of representation of imagery uh, of what global capital does to our localities and so in hyderabad i noticed where we were building which was essentially a large office park they were you know investments by all sorts of corporations from around the world and they were all essentially dumb glass boxes Uh, mm-hmm. and what you might call this sort of dumb impo- north american glass boxes, boxes that didn't belong there i didn't there. use the word north american yeah. but just glass boxes <laughs> i will yeah but uh 
But essentially, these were highly unsustainable. They were climatically incorrect. Uh, but they were powerful images because these were these are the images that define what global capital or the arrival of global capital on a terrain. And what was interesting is Hyderabad, where this building is located, at that point was going through a political crisis where they were trying to divide the state. And so there were riots every week and these glass boxes were kind of uh, great targets for people to stone to kind of express their displeasure with global capital but also with the politics. But what was interesting is that the curtain glazing vendors were selling the curtain glazing with details of fishing netting which would save these buildings from being stoned. <laughs> and I found that, you know, Mercedes-Benz, many other corporations were habiting these buildings with these nets. So it told me that this image that was related to global capital was very kind of powerful. And how could one actually challenge it? So for me, the project was about how do you localize the identity of global capital? How do you make global capital invest in architecture, which is about the locality? And it was also a critique consciously on what I believe is a hijacking of the debate on sustainability by the high-tech architects. So in the 70s and 80s, till the 70s and 80s rather, passive climate control in Africa, India, was what we grew up learning. Uh, and uh, you had architects from around the globe, including from England and the US, who were working in India, demonstrating in, in India and Africa and in Indonesia and Thailand, demonstrating beautiful examples of passive cooling and all of that. And somewhere in the 80s, I think the high-tech architects stole uh, this kind of debate and a green industry emerged, which was then about making a chemical or a mechanical fix to the problem. So you had more air, uh, efficient air conditioning, better sealants for glass, uh, the, the whole lead uh, uh, rating system, I think is aligned completely with the green industry. So the project here was about showing how a kind of low-tech solution, which recycled uh, you know, aluminum to create a handmade trellis, in a small factory which handcrafted this and then we grew wines to create a, a second skin which had a misting system in it which humidified the facade which allowed air to move through it uh, it not only constructed a new identity for this corporation which was a construction sort of company uh, but also made for the green facade, not as a symbolic green facade, but as a performative green facade, which actually cools, humidifies the building, but uh, also feels like it's kind of grown out of the place. I also thought this project was a good example of how to use natural capital, the vines and the screens, to not only moderate the local climate that you referred to, um, the temperature extremes, but also as an adaptation to the future impacts of climate change, the, the increases in heat and per, 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 perhaps uh, aridity. So is this something that you were thinking about at the time, or has it just become a, a nice uh, byproduct of the project? No, we were very much thinking about this and thinking about this very consciously. We were also reacting to the kind of uh, the fad, so to speak, of green facades where, you know, I mean, they're incredibly talented architects like Patrick Blanc and things who've done, I mean, for, for me, his work is like artwork uh, on a facade. But the idea of sticking green on a facade is decorative. And so the question we were asking was, how could you also make it performative? Um, because, uh, you know, within this larger crisis that we are all facing as humanity of, uh, of climate change, uh, I mean, every gesture we make has to do more than one or two things. Uh, we have to expand the performance of every gesture we make uh, because that's how we'll build in efficiencies and that's how we'll save energy. And, uh, and you know, many other things come out of it. In fact, for me, one of the most beautiful unintended consequences of this project was uh, its social dimension, which I um, honestly hadn't anticipated till the building began performing, which is that suddenly the gardeners, who are the poorest paid in a corporation like this, 
were really actually empowered. There was great empathy for them because now the facade and the very identity of the building depended on the poorest paid employees of that company. Uh, and now they roam the whole facade because we created a catwalk and they can look their bosses in the eye. They dress beautifully and there's much more empathy for them. And their position in the corporation, I think, went up a few notches. And, uh, you know, I've experienced this and, and I talked to the owners of the company. I can't tell you the gratitude they have to the guy. Gardeners, people working in the office building make friends with the gardeners to get a bouquet of well, flowers. I, I can remember you wife. mentioning they reach reach out um, of the window or door to the catwalk and say, "Could you pick one of those flowers?" That's for correct, me? exactly. <laughs> or ca- or so catch a, a butterfly direct, for my, my daughter's <laughs> biology class, or you know. So that creates a sociability, and the way I frame this more theoretically is that. What for me that became emblematic is the notion of soft thresholds because I feel we quite often use architecture and the built environment to construct very hard thresholds which don't allow forms of transgression. Uh, and, uh, you know, I mean, Mr. Trump's wall is the ultimate emblem of the hardening of thresholds between people uh, and different communities and society. And architecture can be instrumental in softening the threshold. Uh, and I think we have to be mindful of that. And I think we need to infect our discussions about architecture by framing the question of society also through these kinds of very specific instruments uh, or conditions that have massive implications on society. So tying both the social and the environmental exactly. together yeah. as one. Yeah. Much of the discourse about in the environment and climate change in the fields of planning and architecture seems to focus on either harm reduction or adaptation to the future impacts of climate change. What about regeneration of damaged ecologies? What are the most important lessons learned from these two projects or other of your projects that would help also inform how we might better repair and regenerate damaged ecologies? No, I think that's a really critical question. And, you know, for us, one of the things that we've always done in our practice, and at any given time we have at least one project and sometimes many more, is a conservation. Uh, and I use the word conservation versus historic preservation because conservation also ties into ecological thinking, which is like the conservation of the natural environment, because finally it's an ecological or it's an understanding of the broader ecology that allows us to do some of this. And so within conservation, for me at least, repair, maintenance and all of that kind of sits in there. And both these projects actually allowed me to, in reflection, understand the importance of blurring the kind of polarities and the binaries that we either we often set up uh, between uh, image and how image is privileged to mean something. And here I think the image of the project, whether it's the elephant village where landscape begins to be privileged in certain ways, or in the case of the corporate office where these are true green jobs and they're not green jobs in the way leads might define green jobs, but these are green jobs because they uh, actually touch the lowest economic group, uh, but also are linked to uh, a performative dimension as well as the identity of the building. But, you know, this is a cultural problem within the profession. So maintenance and repair are not seen as, are not celebrated as much as new buildings are. So the idea of sort of these flights into utopia where we escape our existing condition through imagining a better future uh, is highly problematic. And I think it's uh, in pedagogy and within the culture of the profession I think this is a real problem. So if we began to celebrate people who maintain buildings, for example, I think it would be a shift. We would be talking about architecture in different ways. We would be talking about the life cycle of materials. We'd be talking about which materials we put adjacent to each other if their life cycles are different, which is essentially what we do in historic preservation or conservation. All the problems that emanate in a building emanate at the point where two materials of two different life cycles touch each other because one gives way before the other, for example. So I think in our pedagogy and in our cultural kind of uh, conversations within the profession, I think we've got to put in today's world repair, maintenance, reclaiming uh, our environments in the center of the debate. Are, are you 
setting that course for your own students at the GSD. I remember when we were both there, new uh, buildings, creating new neighborhoods was the focus as opposed to regenerating um, existing neighborhoods or damaged neighborhoods. Um, and, and I think of architecture schools around North America and Europe very much focus on the new um, because it's uh, like creation of a new piece of art as opposed to taking something that's existing, understanding it and, and completing its life cycle. Right, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think, I think this is slowly changing as the crises become clearer. So if you actually think about this more broadly, and I think this has a huge implication on, uh, on pedagogy, is that, you know, I mean, when we were students, the past was very firm. Our interpretation of the past was very firm. Any differences were very finely nuanced. And for us, the future was a distant kind of place that you could speculate about. So let me say that the past was very firm and the future was very fluid. You know, a few weeks ago when that report came out and they said we've got a decade to correct the climate mm, change yes, temperature difference, IPCC. what has happened and given our politics today and look at all the fake news and everything else that we've Our future has been compressed. It's, it's reversed. The future has suddenly become incredibly firm and the past has become fluid. And so we can't afford to actually even indulge ourselves with the past any longer. We don't have the time or the luxury for it. And so the future beckons us to repair, to restore, to maintain, to reserve resources, uh, to rethink our fundamental imagination of where we should live and how we should live. More recently in your academic work, you have been exploring large-scale human migrations and temporary settlement. In your book, The Kumbamela, Mapping the Ephemeral Megacity, you explore how millions of people migrate to and are peaceably accommodated in the Kumbamela religious festivals every 12 years. Given the huge challenges the world now faces as climate change is beginning to increase droughts and food shortages in the middle latitudes, thus resulting in increasing numbers of climate refugees. I think that listeners would be very interested in hearing more about your work on temporary settlements and any lessons learned for how we might better accommodate future climate refugees. And, and, and to put this in perspective for listeners, the UN Refugee Agency now projects that by 2050, there will be over 250 million climate refugees. Yes, I mean, and I think... Uh this is a critical question. And it's sort of linked to what you asked earlier is how does one actually bring these questions to bear within the pedagogy and with students? And uh, the Kumbh Mela is a Hindu festival. It's the largest sort of Congress of Hinduism that occurs once every 12 years on the confluence of the Yamuna and the Ganges rivers. And a city is set up for 7 million people to live there for 55 days and 120 million people approximately visit it. And this was a figure that was challenged till the Harvard Business School, who was part of this project using aggregated cell phone data, broke it down to establish scientifically that at least, at least 72 million people visited based on the cell phone counts because they had that data. Data, which means you could safely say that about 120 million people came there because a family of four would have been counted. And what is the size of the resident population uh, that, is, that is permanent? About It's 7 million people for 55 days yep. uh, who live there. And the other 120 million people visit on five days for certain ceremonies that take place at the riverbank. Uh, so it's a city that is an ultimate expression of flux at a scale that's like, unprecedented and it's been going on for many thousand thousands of years only organized more recently but what one learned from this was there were many lessons that one learned but i think for me one or two of the critical lessons were uh one was that we you know we take for granted that the built form of a city persists and we are trapped into permanence but what we don't challenge are the governance systems in a city. So actually, I would argue after doing this exercise that the governance structure of cities, that is the political hierarchies that influence the way cities are made, persist for much longer than the built form. And in this city, they have a 
they have a, a, a temporal governance systems, which means the hierarchies change over the whole year as the city goes into operation. So it's incredibly centralized when they start. It's incredibly decentralized when they finish. Uh, and it involves completely different characters, which we've mapped uh, in the book. And so this made me then think about how could one extend this? And it made us think about how you know, this is a religious festival, which is about celebration. People completely put their differences aside. Uh, it has common purpose. Most cities go through the contestations they go through because of conflicting purposes and aspirations. And so how does one expand this idea further? And so we did a follow-up book, which has come out recently, which is titled does Permanence Matter? That's the title of the book. And the subtitle is Ephemeral Urbanism, which we also placed uh, as a central exhibit in the last uh, Venice Biennale, because I felt that to challenge architects with the notion of permanence would be productive, because permanence has become too much of a default condition when we are making decisions about buildings in terms of the investments we make in terms of material and all of that. So we are often, what I learned from this is that we are often Maybe, or let me say this is a question that are we, de are we designing permanent solutions for temporary problems? And that's where this is where the notion of flux sort of comes in. And so what this bo new book does is it creates a taxonomy of ephemeral landscapes. Uh, so the taxonomy goes from the celebratory to the disastrous. So the celebratory would be the landscapes of religion, of celebration, like Burning Man, for example, of transactions, which are the many markets that are set up on a temporal scale, to military, to disaster, to refuge, which is refugee camps. And so I think what one has learned from this is that we have to be much more nimble in terms of our governance structures. We have to be much more frugal in terms of our investment, and we have to take really seriously the notion of reversibility when we design buildings. This question of climate refugees is the one that scares me the most about the future that, that we're headed towards. If you look at what's happened the last year with a million Syrian refugees moving north into various parts of Europe, how much havoc that's caused to political institutions there. 250 million is just a staggering number. What, what, one of the huge issues is obviously going to be accommodation. What, what would you propose to governments uh, about how they might use some of the lessons learned? I, I think right now, when I look at the climate refugee accommodation, it's more like prison camps than anything else. Um, that, that seems to be the form model. What could they be? What could they be and be just as effective? Any thoughts? There are two thoughts at diametrically opposite ends of the spectrum, and we could, of course, nuance it with many in between. One is, of course, a much broader political question, and that is perhaps out of out of the remit of a conversation like this, which is the political acceptance mm -hmm. of this. I think what Angela Merkel did with Germany was a precedent in this sort of form. So it has to do with or as, as opposed to that, what Trump is doing in the United States and what Canada has done in, in, in incredibly beautiful ways. So I think one is at the level of the larger politics, which goes back to that map of iniquity that we started off this conversation with. The second is a more anticipatory strategy where I think all of us as professionals uh, can also participate. And so it's, you know, it's like I always jokingly say that contractors in India, you know, when it comes to June, all the delays are attributed to the monsoon. And it's like, you know, the monsoon has been happening for a million years. Didn't you anticipate this? And so I think also for us as, 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 um, as professionals, I mean, come on. I mean, we are equipped by society through our training to anticipate spatial possibilities in which people can live better lives. And we've got to extend this into this crisis too. We've got to actually begin to anticipate the effects of climate change, where demographies might move, where they could move. Could we set up settlements that are not knee-jerk reactions and become refugee camps, but could be where we could anticipate places should be populated? Could there be new production of agricultural landscapes that could attract people? And of course, there are many subsets from that. How do you social engineer this? How do you mix different communities and not make refugee camps which are singular in their communal makeup, which make them homogeneous, monofunctional kinds of entities? And so, 
I mean, I think design can bring a huge amount to this. How we can get people away from the coastline, which is all sort of going to be affected with climate change. And that'll be the second round of climate refugees where the oceans are going to rise so quickly that we won't know how to deal with it. So I think we need to spend more time as professionals setting up the narratives, creating the visual representation, uh, seeking out potential areas and reconfigurations within, of course, given nation states. We can't question that. Uh, but I mean, I think we have to, so in the same way as the moderns and the utopians of the 1920s and 30s dreamt up new towns and dreamt up new architectural projects, we've got to find the equivalent narrative for that, where we begin to start making and projecting what might be possible ways that human settlements can be reorganized. We are becoming people who are coming in as the rear guard now. We are no longer avant-garde as a profession because we come into these situations and then we say, okay, what can we do to improve this refugee camp? So we start creating prefabricated units that might be a little more efficient. So we are, we are down to the nuts. We're not, you know, we're down to the bottom of that sort of chain. And I think we've got to reverse our role. And I think we are well equipped to do that. Well, certainly the notion of people being on the move is going to be the dominant theme of humanity over the next 25 to 30 years, um, both with rising ocean levels as well as areas that are now agricultural lands that become arid lands. What do you see as a possibility for actually informing our understanding of how to understand populations on the move. You said that we're no longer the avant-garde, but I would think one of the things that we could do as architects and urban designers is start to cast visions of what this could be in a positive way. Because it, for right now, it's all negative. It's all about refugees on the move, how we defend ourselves. Uh, Trump is very much uh, not so much the problem as a response to a problem. Um, he's a symptom so, as, a, as opposed yeah. to cause. Correct. So, I mean, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed about, uh, or maybe in Canada this didn't appear, but, you know, a few weeks ago, the New York Times had these incredible spreads where they had mapped every house uh, in the country. And um, and these were just the most beautiful maps. And then when you got your Boston edition, you got a blow up of this area. You know, it made me completely rethink the way I imagined what urbanization uh, or where even human settlement, let's just use the word human settlement because that allows us to blur the difference between the rural and the urban, how it exists. And my new work over the last uh, two years has been spatializing the census data from India down to the village level. Uh, and having done that, one is seeing completely different patterns in terms of urbanization versus the criteria the government uses to define what is urban. So one of the theses that we are building as part of this research, Craig, which you know we'll have out in about six or eight months, is that we could argue that by the government's definition, uh, which is based on density, population number, numbers, and employment patterns, India is 60% urban for six months of the year and 40% urban for the other six months. But that 20% difference means there are 300 million people who are moving between the urban and the rural. So that's what I mean by flux, which means, therefore, then I think how one imagines, imagines the synergy in terms of infrastructure investments between these different forms of settlements is one big question. And the other big question is that how one then designs spaces within cities, a real urban design and planning question, which is cognizant of the temporal dimension, which means places that can be reversed, new typologies of shared community configurations for housing, for example. I mean, the way we design housing in these large gated communities with one and two and three bedroom apartments is not what the market is demanding if you accept this flux. So it will challenge architects to even rethink typology completely in the same way as Germany had rethought worker housing at the, in the 30s and the 40s, just through its the changing political ideologies, etc. The globalization and the tyranny of images, the tyranny of typologies uh, that is now floating around the globe, which no again, no recognition of locality, 
is really detrimental to the way we are constructing uh, the environment. And with respect to the environment, it's pretty clear there are no easy solutions to the environmental mess we now find ourselves in. But what do you think are the most important things we can do to pull back from the brink of environmental catastrophe, especially in the developing world, that will be hit so hard by the impacts of climate change? Yeah, uh, you know, I I often think, uh, you know, we are like, I mean, there are two or three things, of course, here. I would think the broadest rubric that I would throw out there for discussion is the term synergy. How do we create better synergy in communities? I think I think individualism is not taking us um, uh, anywhere. Uh, I think, of course, it's clear that fossil fuels is a big question here because of emissions and how do you have alternate energies and renewables. And so, I mean, those are some of the obvious sort of uh, uh, responses. Uh, and of course, linked to that is what we discussed earlier in this conversation, which is the notion of individual mobility versus collective mobility, because that's a big contributor to a number of questions. But I think more important than that, and that's why I use the word synergy, is, you know, in today's world, shared infrastructure, whether it's social infrastructure in the form of institutions, schools, hospitals, whatever you might, however you might define that, or it's physical infrastructure in the way of mobility systems or energy systems. These are the common denominators by which new communities have to be formed. And how we create those synergies and how we create narratives that allow us to do that uh, becomes uh, really, really critical. One of the things that seems to get in the way of good ideas being acted on is the insidious problem of willful blindness. In fact, I think one of the greatest challenges we face is coming to terms with the stark reality that that causes. In her book, Willful Blindness, Margaret Heffernan explores our almost infinite capacity to deceive ourselves, to believe what we want to believe, no matter how at odds it is with reality. And I think we have a new version of this now called fake news and alternative facts. How do we get past willful blindness? You know, I mean, again, this is linked a little bit to what we spoke about a few minutes ago, which was this notion, or at least the way I'm seeing the world, where the past has become fluid and the the future has become, or the immediate future has become much more solid, more tangible, uh, much more of a defined crisis. And I can't but help think that you know, the best things in the world have happened through crisis. Mm. When we talk about the history of cities, if you look at Mumbai, you look at Vienna, you look at many other parts of the world, a crisis triggers of change in communities. A great fire allows you to expand the city, put in new infrastructure, the plague or cholera or, you know, complete disasters. I, and, you know, the, for example, the world wars gave us liberalism, I mean, which is a project now that is being challenged but the idea of coexistence, of equality and liberalism in the way we sort of see it in our politics in North America, which came out of Europe, came out of the world wars. If without the world wars, we wouldn't have had liberalism as we've all enjoyed it in the last few decades. And so I think the catastrophe, the crisis is waiting to happen. That might be the only way where as human beings we get away from this willful blindness. And I, I hate to be as cynical as that, but uh, we seem to be like lemmings as human beings, uh, heading towards a kind of self-destruct. And I think when we pour, put our toes into that water and we realize it's real, which we are at the edge of doing, uh, I think it'll make us change the narratives by which we hold together as community. So crisis is as really the solution to willful blindness. I mean, it, it seems that that will will have to be the way because we right now don't seem to be acting. We just, Actually, we just yeah, that's don't. The way we I have mean, all the knowledge we need, and yet yeah. we, around the world we're not acting. So we need a crisis that, uh, you know, I think it was Paul Romer who used to work with the World Bank. He said, a crisis is a terrible thing to waste. Yes, that's, I remember that. That's very... <laughs> That's, that's very accurate, I think. Uh, given your role as both an academic and practicing architect and urban designer, going forward, what do you see your role being in driving change? Well, clearly, like any academic would tell you, after you reach a certain age, you can only hope on the next generation. So, And I have been and I am very focused now on actually 
making sure that another generation thinks about this differently. And that's why even books like Does Permanence Matter, the work on the Kum Mela, this is all a way of kind of challenging the business as usual construction of what cities might mean. It's really about infecting the debate in a positive way to make you know, younger people think about these problems differently. Uh, and uh, it's hard to enter their world of social media. Uh, but I think in today's world where we have too much information, a lot of us, if we spend time like we are doing in this conversation and your whole initiative is about that, if we can, if we can do serious reflection, I think we bring wisdom to the conversation, which in uh, in a society which has an overdose of information uh, can be a very good moderating and productive tool. What do you think is missing from the discussion? I think for me, and I, it, this is becoming more and more visible to me through just my own experiences and work, is is humanity. Our conversations and the narratives are so scientific, are so precise, and now with new technologies and computation and computers are so damn precise that they forget that finally it's for the human being. So the human-centric debate is lost. You know, when I listen to people talk about climate change, even if they're talking about refugees, they're talking about numbers. Aggregate they're numbers, talking about, like thousands, Or millions, they're talking yes. about politics. Yeah. So they're talking about, you know... Uh, global capital becoming disruptive, uh, but the cultural dimension, I think, is is it needs to be resuaded. We need to remind ourselves that it has to be human centric. Then who's missing? What types of people are missing from the conversation? Well, I mean, I think, of course, it's uh, well, the human being is missing in all its forms. But I think, yes. because of the great inequity in the world. Uh, it's the marginalized who are missing. It's people who don't have the voice in that expression. So you very rarely see conversations about refugee camps where the voice of, voices of those displaced are, uh, are represented. It's every big global agency that's involved with the politics of the funding of refugee camps and the politics of deployment of resources are represented more than you know, the people on the ground. We don't even know who those refugees are often. So true. Uh, we've known each other for many years now, and I've always known you as a very optimistic person. So let me ask you, how hopeful are you about whether we're going to be able to get our act together as a species to really deal with these problems? Uh, you know, I am, I am optimistic, I think. I think it'll be a combination of a crisis. It'll be a combination, and, and a very important part of this conversation, contingent on all of us, is how we reconstruct these narratives. I mean, if you go back and just look at religion, Craig, I mean, I'm just saying this in a very simplistic way, but I think it does make sense, is that, you know, when, I mean, look at the origins of Hinduism and look at the origins of, say, let's say, Islam and Christianity and Judaism. You know, those three latter religions came out of landscapes of strife, difficult landscapes of uh, which were non-productive. These were desert landscapes. It was about loving your neighbor. It was about community. Uh, and all the dictums of those religions were about that. Hinduism grows out of the tropics of wealth, uh, of, 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 of a surfeit of food and, you know, all of that. And what does Hinduism tell us? It propagates individualism. And that's why now in California, all mm. the gurus and the yoga happens because they are sort of of dealing with an individualism that comes out of wealth and affluence. Right. And so religions played this role in the past uh, of defining what the problem was and helping communities organize themselves in a particular way productively. So I'm not arguing for religion, but I'm arguing that now as a species, because that's the word you use, with the technologies that we have at hand, I think we have to construct good narratives, productive narratives that are communicated in ways, and that's why every initiative such as this is an important one, uh, which will be become the new religion, which will become the new way that communities and societies can organize themselves. I think it's become such a laser fair it's situation. It's become such a, you know, we are, we, are, we, are, we are going through this evolution where we suddenly have the instruments of these technologies, but haven't yet been able to use them in productive enough ways, I believe. Mm. What about your students? Are they hopeful? Do they see themselves uh, up to the, to the task of meeting these environmental challenges in the work they will be doing? 
I, I think so. I think so. I think uh, I think it becomes again uh, a responsibility for us uh, to expose them to different ways of doing, uh, to what might be different models of practice, uh, what practice should address. Uh, I mean, I think we as students went through. Uh, an understanding of pedagogy, which was very kind of monocultural in some ways. I mean, there was a definition of the architect, and that was the architect around the globe. Uh, and that's the reason why you coming from Canada and I'm coming from uh, India, besides both our post-colonial past, uh, could kind of relate to each other as architects so easily, because essentially we were trained in a very singular image of the architect. Uh, and I think uh, students are beginning to break away from that. It was very much about form making. It was very much about form making now. Social resolution. That's correct. Now I think it's moving into many other spectrums. Uh, but I mean, I think the 21st century imperatives for uh, practice uh, would be really seeking problems. Uh, and then getting someone to pay for you to solve them, uh, but not waiting for someone to tell you what the problem is, and then you solving it. So the the role will have to reverse. So to that end, what advice or direction do you give your students about how they might approach these challenges of the 21st century imperative? Precisely that. Seek out the problems. That is, don't get trapped in a model of practice, which is a model where we set we set up our offices and wait for a client to knock at our door, but rather identify the problems and then find the constituency that will support you to make that happen. Uh, because I think we are trained to be able to seek those problems out. So, you know, we are often uh, accused of being guns for hire. Yes, and that's a legitimate accusation uh, because of that model of practice where we wait for someone to knock on our doors and then we go and serve whatever whatever perception of the problem they have. Whereas I think we are individuals, we are citizens, we are part of a community first before we are architects. And therefore for us to define those problems and to understand and to surface and articulate them uh, is as important. I know you're tight for time, but before we wrap up, I have a few questions I'd like to, to ask that I ask all our guests at the end of an interview. The first question is, what books related to these issues do you most often recommend or gift to other people? Well, you know, a book that I recently came across, which is one that I would bring, like to bring to the notice of your sort of listeners, is a book called The Great Derangement. Its subtitle is Climate Change and the Unthinkable, and it's by an author called Amitabh Ghosh. And I think what's incredible about this book is besides the fact that it's very accessible, uh, very easy to read, uh, but told as a good novelist would tell the story, uh, it's the only one that I know that brings in culture. Ah, uh, and it's not only okay. about the science of climate change, but it's about uh, how culture uh, is also significant in this sort of conversation and not just the narrow corridors of science, uh, but of you know, culture, politics, power, uh, and how all of those are actually uh, informing this conversation in the same way as I said to you about the lead uh, rating and about uh, how the high techs and the green industry have really, in my view, hijacked globally the conversation about sustainable buildings. I think uh, science has become overpowering in that conversation and perhaps not adequate if you have to engage uh, uh, a wider constituency of people uh, to pay attention to this question. Second question, if you had the power to implement one policy in cities around the world that would reduce emissions or help cities adapt to climate change or help our cities and regions regenerate environmental damage, what would it be? Wow. King for a day. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> King is with a policy that would work. Well, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I would, I, I, I would really... I mean, if I had one thing to do, I would get rid of the idea. Well, the idea of the individual in the way they have access to any form of energy uh, or mobility. Uh, I would uh, I would work policy out in a way that this notion that infrastructure broadly is the collective and the commons. Bring back the idea of the commons. Mm -hmm. I think that's a very important first step uh, to move towards. Uh, addressing the issue of climate change. 
And then the third question, which you can follow the first and second ideas with, if you want, if you could publish a full page spread in the Sunday New York Times of anything you wanted, written or graphic, what would you do with it? I would go back to that idea of the map that I told you about, ah. but what I, which is a map that shows population distribution and inequity. And I would overlay on that a mapping to show how 70% of the world's population lives by the ocean and more and more people are actually moving to the cities by the ocean uh, like lemmings in the process of self-destruction. I, I think that sounds like a project for you or a project you can give your students to do. <laughs> yes, possibly. <laughs> and, and finally, Roel, what advice would you give to listeners about what they can do to make a difference in meeting the challenges of the 21st century imperative? I would just say work more collectively. I mean, I think it's, again, contingent upon us to whether become part of our communities and vote, vote more act actively if you're part of a, of a democracy or find any other way that the collective and the commons uh, can be put in the center of any discussion and weigh any proposal uh, for climate change as a response for political decisions to be part of a collective. We've got to get away from giving expression to the powers that are uh, which are the marginal 1% in on the globe, uh, which control the wealth globally. And this is not just North America, it's India, it's China. Uh, I, I think we are, we are putting too much power in the hands of very few people whose motives are only more greed. So we've got to correct, correct this imbalance and this overpowering presence of greed concentrated in the hand of very, very, very few people. That, that's a very important challenge. But before we close, I should ask you where listeners can reach you if they want to learn more about your work and research or connect with you. Well, if they want to know more of the, of the research, they should really go to my website, which is rmaarchitects.com, www.rmaarchitects.com, or go to the Graduate School of Design website at Harvard University, or of course, email me. Uh, which uh, you can find also on either one of these websites. Great. We'll put those on the uh, website uh, podcast blog. Thank you very much for your time, Rahul. It's been Thanks, a Greg. lot this of fun. Thanks, Greg. This was wonderful, as always, yes. talking to you. But I'm really happy, and I compliment you for the kind of effort you're making to put some of these questions in the center stage of the discussion within the profession and our broader global community. It's, it's a small thing to do, but it's been a, a lot of fun talking to some of the brightest people I know. Thanks. Thanks for your time. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. You can find links to more information about this podcast and to notes about the books and references we discussed at tfcipodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, please let us know by rating it on the Apple iTunes podcast website. Until next time, thank you for listening.